We the Peace is a podcast sponsored by PAX, dedicated to helping Christian leaders bring peacemaking and justice into our organizations. We explore how peacemaking, activism, and the justice of God are central to discipleship. We publish teachings for leaders, resources for learners, and host interviews with frontline faith leaders about various topics. Our aim is to love the church, and we want to help you become the peace of Jesus wherever you are. Welcome, everyone. This is season three of We the Peace, and we are exploring a Jesus-centered theology. We're learning that for our theology to be Jesus-centered, we must honor the global village of Bible interpreters instead of prioritizing Western white reform theology as the way to understand and follow Jesus. I am with the one and only Dr. Vince Bantu, PhD, author of a bunch of things, but a book that we're going to cover called A Multitude of Peoples Engaging Ancient Christianity's Global Identity. Amazing. His interests include theological contextualization, that's helping people understand how to follow God in their own context, early Christianity in Africa and Asia, and theological education in under-resourced communities. He currently teaches a lot of things at Fuller Theological Seminary. His wife, Diana, and their two daughters enjoy traveling, parks, games, and are huge movie fans. Vince, how are you doing today? Oh, great, Josh. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for being on. So this season, we're talking about Jesus-centered theology and positioning that as a global theology and and submitting our heart, especially as majority culture leaders or people trained in the Western tradition, to the theologies all over the world. And your interview and your work is so important because you really root Christianity in the African, Asian, Eastern tradition. And before we get into your book, which I'm excited to do, a question for you, what has been your own journey in decentering Western theology from Jesus? Was it a moment? Was it a book, a class, a conversation? Help us understand your own journey and going, oh, Christianity isn't the white person's thing. Help us understand that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, it's it, it, it's interesting that you know you have a, a painting behind you of one of my mentors and and spiritual fathers because that's actually uh, you know Uncle Richard Twist uh, was a, a major instrumental person in my life um, that that really kind of helped with that. Um, I, I definitely you know I grew up uh, I, I always grew up thinking about issues of culture and identity and faith and the intersection of those things. Like I, I grew up as a Christian, uh, from a young age, you know, I got okay. saved like seven, eight years old. Um, and I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, very racially segregated city. You know, I would say probably the most just starkly racially segregated city in the country. On top of that, I grew up, you know, as in a biracial household, like my dad is black, my mom's white. So I was always thinking about culture and race. Like, and I grew up kind of like, I mean, the city of St. Louis, it's like cut in half. And I grew up just north of that line. So I was always kind of, you know, I grew up in a black neighborhood, um, but I was always kind of, I was close to like a wealthy white community. It was only about a mile away. So I was always kind of going across the line and seeing these different, these different worlds. 
Um, and, and the church I grew up in was actually in that wealthy white community. So I grew up in a predominantly white church, but grew okay. up in a predominantly black neighborhood. And so I was always, um, you know, uh, I always felt a disconnect between who I was culturally um, and, how, and and what my perception of what Christianity was for the way that it was kind of presented as this in a, in a very white American middle class conservative norm uh, in a normative kind of way. And I just uh, I guess I, I just always kind of thought like that was my I mean, you know, especially growing up, you know, uh, my my little church was my whole world of what Christianity was. So I didn't I didn't have any other concepts yet. But, I, you know, ended up uh, you know, out of because I felt called to ministry, I ended up going into Christian. I went to a Christian school to study theology. I felt called to ministry. And, and it was really when I was there that I, um, I think just through the Lord bringing mentors. And I remember uncle Richard came and spoke my, my freshman year and, and talked about following Jesus, you know, uh, the native way. And that just spoke to me in powerful ways. And it was through people like him and other people, um, that really mentored me to show me that actually, uh, and, and I'll tell you the passage that the, the, the core passage for me, was in Acts 10 when God told Peter to kill and eat. And Peter said, no, I'm not touching anything unclean. And God said, don't call unclean what I've made clean. Wow. And I just felt encouraged by the Lord to know that growing up, my culture, like my hood was being called unclean, but God has made it clean. And so like I can follow him as a brother from the hood and I don't have to assimilate to somebody else's culture in order to follow Jesus. And so that's really just, I think that was kind of the, the passage and, and around the time period where I just really felt called by the Lord to also try to just, you know, be an encouragement and minister to other people who might also have similar questions and struggles. Wow. That's powerful. So you're sitting there in a class and Uncle Twist, as you call him, uh, Dr. Richard Twist comes in and, and shares. That's that's really powerful. And then as you move further into your academic journey at in deconstructing, what are the dangers from your perspective of conceiving Christianity from a white Western lens? One of the biggest dangers um, is, it, it again, it violates, I think, the principle that God was trying to communicate not only to Peter, but he was trying to set the entire church up for the fulfillment of prophecy that he already said that through Abraham's seed, all nations will be blessed. And as you mentioned, like my book, like he said, your descendants are going to be a multitude of all peoples, right? Uh, and, and he, you know, he told Israel through Isaiah that, you know, his house is going to be a house of prayer for all nations. And so there, and he said, it, you know, it's, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant, but instead I'll make you a light to all the people groups of the world. And so this was the, you know, fulfillment. And then Jesus, you know, when he ascended, he said, you know, go out and make disciples of all nations. And so this was the fulfillment of that prophecy, which was long coming that, you know, now you know, we get Cornelius, the first Gentile, the first non-Hebrew mentioned in scripture to be, you know, filled with the Holy Spirit and saved and baptized. And now is fully a part of the people of God. And then God is setting Peter up to go and be a representative and an advocate in Acts 15 for the Gentile believers um, that that not only have they been incorporated into the covenant people of God by grace through faith in Jesus, but also they are accepted as they are. There's no there's no cultural priority that the Hebrews are going to have in the body of Christ, but they're one of many people groups that, and they're the people group through whom God brings salvation to the world, but they don't have any kind of prized position. And there's no cultural assimilation into Hebrew traditions. But no, actually, Gentiles can stay the way they are and they can even eat meat sacrificed to idols. And so, I mean, if anything, like this is probably the core issue of the whole New Testament of all the epistles is this very dilemma 
of like the question of whether or not Christianity was going to remain within the confines of Jewish identity and practice. And the answer from the apostles and the Holy Spirit was a resounding no. And that, no, this is actually for all people um, to follow Jesus as he's made them. And so, you know, when we begin to conceive of theology or Christian tradition through one cultural lens or as a white Western religion, then we're reversing the very nature of the church that was established by the Holy Spirit and, and by the apostles at the beginning of the church. It's, a, it's also a denial of the image of God, which has been imprinted on every human being. Listen, from your perspective, how did we get so far off track in the 21st century American church where we are just expecting people to enter into white modes of living, thinking, acting, cultural expressions that are uniquely European as opposed to encouraging people to follow Jesus how they want? How did we get off track? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, in fact, you know, it's interesting, you know, that you asked that because so many books and conferences and resources in the body of Christ that are trying to, again, decolonize Christianity or decenter Western normativity. Like conversations on that kind of just assume, don't usually ask that question. It's just kind of starting from the place of realizing that white Western normativity in Christianity just is a thing. And generally, people just imagine it having started in Western colonialism, like in the 15th century. But we don't really ask, like, how that happened. And so uh, we just kind of assume, no, and it is. I mean, it is a thing. Um, and people have known it's a thing long before there was a, ever a thing called CRT as of, like, 30 years ago. Uh, but you know, way before that, people have known that uh, that there is a thing called, like, uh, white supremacy and, and white privilege and racism that disproportionately... Uh, affects black and brown people. And so that's always been known. But uh, but usually, yeah, the, the whole question of where did that come from is, is not often addressed. And so in the book, Multitude of All Peoples, really the first chapter is meant to be a like a dialogue partner with most of the literature that does exist that, again, is now reacting to uh, and is trying to deconstruct this Western colonial expression of Christianity um, that has defined Christianity, not only for the last few centuries, but really for even longer than that. So it's meant to show kind of the, the backdrop. I kind of pinpoint it to a few significant turns in history. The one thing I think that's important to point out is that, as I mentioned, the New Testament itself goes to great lengths to communicate that the Christian gospel and the church is not to be associated with any one people group or culture. Every other religion if you think about it, is associated with a particular culture. You know, Shinto is associated with Japan, and Islam is associated with Arabia and Arabic, and uh, Hinduism is associated with India, and, you know, uh, African and indigenous tribal religions are all strongly associated to their tribe and to their land and to their culture. But Christianity is universal. It's for all people, and there's no like linguistic or cultural or geographical uh, assimilation that needs to happen. Uh, and that was the reality of the church for the first few centuries. But in the fourth century, when Constantine was converted and then Christian dynamics in the Roman Empire start to take on lots of Roman characteristics, then there, there started to be this process by which people around the world perceived of Christianity as a Roman thing. And that that made it harder, especially for Christians outside of the Roman Empire, which had been there, again, from the very beginning. There were Christians in India, Christians in Persia, which was Rome's kind of main rival. And that actually instigated the adoption and the appropriation, really, of Christian identity by the Roman Empire and by the Roman Church 
actually led to the martyrdom and persecution of Christians in the Persian Empire because that was Rome's uh, enemy. And there was this sense in which now Persian Christians had to were made to feel that they had to choose between their cultural and their religious identity, which was not something they ever had to deal with or choose before. And so this continued on, especially now Christianity continued to grow in Africa and in Asia. But beginning in the fifth century, the next kind of notch in it was actually the exclusion and oppression of those Christians by the dominant church in the Roman Empire. That after the Council of Chalcedon in 451, the Christians that were dominant in Africa and Asia were largely excommunicated and seen as heretical and oppressed by the dominant church in the Roman Empire. And that really weakened the um, missional impact of those Christians, even though it didn't stop it. And actually Christianity was continuing to grow across Asia and Africa, but it severely weakened it. And it also continued to exacerbate the mentality of the Roman church that it would, that it was kind of the, the arbiter of all things Orthodox in the global church. And then that led to the final notch in it, which was after the rise of Islam, that had kind of a two-sided effect that exacerbated this process, wherein number one, the rise of Islam also further diminished the missional impact of Christians in Africa and in Asia, that many of which now found themselves under Islamic dominance and then eventually under Islamic persecution. But also uh, the, the rise of kind of an Islamic religious empire in the, in, the, in the Near East led to the diminishment of the Roman Empire in the East, and now the Western Empire had fallen, and the, even the Eastern Empire became severely weakened after the rise of Islam. So that gave rise to European Christians feeling like they needed to kind of create a competitor state over in the Western European regions. And this indeed gave rise to Western European nations itself. This is what, this is then the time period where some of the Western and Northern European nations even started to emerge. And then you had the Carolingian dynasty and then ultimately the Holy Roman empire, which, you know, also um, kind of, again, saw itself as like a, a Christian empire that would be an, an alternative and a competitor with the Islamic empire in the East, yeah. which built itself and modeled itself like a Constantine, or like a uh, kind of a Christian Western empire that waged crusades and then ultimately initiated, uh, you know, transatlantic slavery, um, also was initiated, meant to be kind of a, a counterpoint in Western Africa uh, to the slave trade that was going on in Eastern Africa under Islamic powers. And so, and also then ultimately coming into the Americas. And so again, what, what we usually think of as a beginning process in the 15th century was actually the a kind of a, a again, a, 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 a synthesis of, of a particular kind of hegemonic West idea of a Western or a white uh, or a European entity that was, in their minds, synonymous with Christianity and the Christian institution that also legitimated uh, or legitimized uh, slavery, colonialism, and imperial expansion that really, again, what we see in the 15th uh, through the 19th centuries of colonialism was not like kind of a, a new thing, but there was actually other religious and political and ethnic uh, dynamics that have been going on for centuries before that, that go all the way back to the fourth century. That's powerful as I hear you talk. And, and those of you who are listening, you're getting a rapid history lesson in the captivity of the Western church to these powerful forces that connect all the way back to the third, fourth century with Constantine and the marginalization of the Asian and the African churches as beautiful and in some ways more faithful expressions of following Jesus during those time periods. And you connected mm -hmm. it all the way up through the Reformation to what we get today. And so the short of it is pick up the book, A Multitude of Peoples Engaging Ancient Christianity's Global Identity, because it will give you a framework for understanding why it is dangerous to just embrace 
the Western line of Christianity, just to, to embrace it without putting it on check with global Christianity and really understanding what the apostles were after and what Jesus was after as you're talking about the original vision that we see biblically before all of this unfolded historically. Am I am I getting at some of what you're saying? Oh, definitely, definitely. So uh, I want to move forward with one specific quote in your book. On page five, you say, quote, the church has two interrelated and indispensable tasks going forward. One, the deconstruction of Western white cultural captivity of the Christian tradition, and two, the elevation of non-Western expressions of Christianity. Speak more to these two tasks in the church here in the West. The New Testament makes it abundantly clear that, and goes to great pains to communicate that Christianity is not meant to be associated with the Hebrew culture or with any particular culture, but in fact, it's a multitude of all peoples, of all cultures. Of I mean, you know, again, John looked up and saw every nation, tribe, and tongue. Um, and so, you know, what has happened in the in the history of the Western world uh, and Western Christianity, which really kind of fed off of each other, is the greatest sin against the gospel in the history of the church, and and it has created the single greatest obstacle to the gospel in the world today. The idea that Christianity is a white or Western religion is a very common idea around the world. And that is the single greatest obstacle to people coming to faith because most people in the world are black or brown or, you know, are non-white. That's most human beings are non-white. And so if you take Christianity and say it's a white religion, and we say it, all the time in a multitude of ways, indirectly and indirectly. And if we, and when we say that, so, I mean, that's step number one is we, we need to analyze how we're saying it yeah. and what are the ways that we're saying it? Cause most of the time they're indirect, but when we say that we are putting a big obstacle and an issue again, that started in the fourth century for the Persian Christians of now you need to choose between, are you going to stay true to your culture or are you going to become a Christian, which is not a dilemma that God intended for us to have. Again, going back to Acts 15, when the council at Jerusalem wrote the letter to the Gentile believers, they said it felt good to the, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to place no, no further burdens uh, in front of you. And so again, for them, like the question of, well, do they need to be circumcised or not? The idea there was that, well, if we do say that they need to be circumcised in order to be part of the covenant people of God, we will then be placing a burden or an obstacle in front of them that's not necessary that we're telling them they need to become like Jews and we don't need to do that. But that's exactly what has happened. There has been a big obstacle place in front of most human beings yeah. to say that if you want to become a Christian, you need to assimilate into Western white culture and its version of Christianity. And so many people around the world look at that and say, understandably say, well, no, thank you. <laughs> I don't want to be white. I don't want to yeah. be Western. I don't want to be American. I want to be who I am. And the reality is that Jesus never told them that they need to be American or yeah. Western, but that's what that country has said. Now, people will often push back and say, you know, well, Bantu, you know, actually the church is, is growing the most in the global South. And actually more, most Christians today are people, are people of color. And I say, yes, that's great. Amen. But also we have to look at the reality that how much though of global Christianity is exported westernized American versions of Christianity that are being imputed into other cultures and how much are global black and brown Christians around the world seeking to emulate the expressions of Christianity that come out of the white middle-class American evangelical culture. And so 
We have to play the long game because the book actually also goes into examples of how Christianity grew in other places and the degree to which it took on local culture. And that goes into that second task of encouraging and, and, and empowering indigenous autochthonous leadership. Um, the degree to which the churches do that, there's a long and a deep implanting of it. Uh, into that culture. But actually, there are literally examples of extinct churches that that came into certain cultures around the world that no longer exist, that were even there for centuries. But you can draw a direct correlation between those churches that declined or even went extinct and the degree to which they actually took on the local culture or where there was just kind of an exported version of it that wasn't really contextualized. And so we have to play the long game and be thinking about if we want these churches uh, to stay in these in these contexts for a thousand years from now, if Jesus continues to tarry, then we need to deconstruct this westernized exported version of Christianity and allow and free people up to own the Jesus story and own the Jesus way according to their own ancestry and cultural traditions. That's powerful. Let's transition from the historical lessons and really the powerful biblical vision in which you're speaking out of not imposing one cultural expression of following Jesus over someone else. We live in a settler society. What does that look like practically here? What does that look like practically for leaders who are longing for this vision and they're looking at their bookshelves and like, well, these are, this is a bunch of like white men I've learned from, or I was theologically trained and it took me until after my training to realize that I'm captive to this. What are some practical steps that we can give people to start in this journey of embracing Jesus from their own cultural perspective that is not beholden to a white Jesus? I think it starts with cross-cultural competence or cross-cultural intelligence of being able to know and articulate what are the eyes through which we, right, rather than always kind of coming at it from a Western individualistic standpoint, but what is the community that I come from that has shaped the way I uh, interpret scripture and the way that I express, you know, kind of my, the, the Christian lifestyle? Uh, and, and, and how does that, you know, shape how I interact with others? Um, and how does that shape my unique positioning, right? Um, you know, the, the, the church is sometimes, you know, kind of, uh, described as like a an audience watching a, a play on stage we're all looking at the same thing right there's one gospel one lord one baptism uh one truth but we're looking at it from different perspectives and that perspective shapes how we engage it and all of our perspectives are equally valuable but they're all also equally limited um and so and then also uh there's also injustice to where you know certain people have been uh kind of put down in like lower seats and their and their chairs have been dismantled and certain people have tried to kind of as, assume some kind of like box seat perspective um which uh and so we have to be able to um you know really speak to issues of you know and i think that goes into number two like number one acknowledging our own perspective both culturally but also in terms of the power and justice and really being able to um teach and share that with one another, but also uh, to be able, and this goes to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, to give greater honor to the parts of the body that have lacked it. Meanwhile, the special parts of the body not needing any special treatment. And so that's where the part of the book that you mentioned, where it's like there's especially an elevation of non-Western cultures. That doesn't mean that Western culture or Western theology has nothing beneficial to give and that it itself is not also made in the image of God because it is and it does. But the, the issue is just that white Western Americanized Christianity has had such an overexposed presence in the global church that it's time for it to kind of take a seat 
and just be in the listening and the learning posture um, and continue to, yeah, like own that and also even figure out its own perspective and its values, but also to give room for the cultivation of, for people of color, uh, you know, especially, um, you know, as you mentioned, we're in a settler society. And so what does it look like for the indigenous owners of this land and inhabitants of this land? Um, I shouldn't say owners actually, because that's a Western concept, but indigenous inhabitants of this land for those visions of theology to be able to be cultivated uh, and also be shared with the global body or the descendants of people who are not settlers, but were actually brought here by force and the theological tradition that comes out of the black church. What does that look like for those things to be uh, cultivated? Um, and, 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 you know, how do, you know, I think that's, we need to uh, find ways to create more theological and uh, resources. And that's, I mean, for example, that's exactly what we do at the Meacham School of Hymenode uh, as well. You know, shout out to, again, Uncle Twist at uh, Nate's uh, Indigenous Learning Community. These are some examples of indigenously run or uh, run by uh, people of African descent that are putting out theological scholarship that we can also continue to quote from and build our theological imagination with the drawing upon unique ancestry and, and paradigms. That's beautiful. What would you say to yourself now looking back in a white church, experiencing cultural captivity, pre-Uncle Twist, and that key moment you had, what would you say to yourself looking back as somebody engaging in local ministry and in and, and that white culture? What, what would you say back to yourself for the purpose of hope? and learning and also being prophetic. I, we would love to hear that. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the first thing I would say is, I feel like I sound like my dad. I'm going to talk like I'm an old man. I'm not that old. But young people these days, uh, they like to use the word woke. Um, and, and, I, and I would say that, yeah, like we need to wake up specifically to the reality of culture. Every single human action is cultural. There's no, and everybody has a culture. There's nobody that is just an individual, like, and unto themselves, that their values have only been shaped by their own decisions. It's, it's, that's not how human beings work. We are shaped in our traditions and cultural context. And that's actually what God intended. God intended for us to live in cultural identity. And we will exist in cultural identities for eternity. Again, Revelation 7, 9, every nation, tribe, and tongue in glory, people were still different and yet, and yet unified. So, Everything is cultural. It was a part of God's intent. It's not an accident. It didn't only happen in Genesis 11 because in Genesis 10, there was already nations speaking different languages. And so cultural diversity is good uh, and cultural specificity is a thing. So like our values, what we think is funny, what we think is hum humble, what we think is intelligent, what we think is valuable, all of these things are shaped by a culture and they are different from other people's cultures and all of our cultures are valuable and all of our cultures are also flawed and limited. Um, and so, so I think we need to wake up to what our culture is because sometimes we just go on autopilot and we, we think that our cultural values are actually biblical values. And sometimes they are, but sometimes they're not. In fact, most times they're not. Uh, and so we need to be able to wake up to know what our culture is so that we don't therefore impose it on somebody else because all of us as a human being have a tendency to want to impose our ways of doing things, but it just becomes easier to do that when you actually have the power to actually enact that thing and enact that power and that hegemony. And so we have to, uh, we also have, that goes into the other thing is we need to also acknowledge part of being awoke to our culture is also acknowledging power and social power and social privilege. 
and being um, being able to acknowledge that uh, and to steward that in a biblical way. And then the last thing I would say is become a part of a biblical church community that is seeking to go on that journey and that exploration of figuring out who we are as individual ethnoi, laoi, genoi, as, as individual races, ethnicities, tribes, sons, and also who we are as a corporate body and how we live together in a unified way, but also in a way that allows us to be distinct, right? Because you need diversity in order to have unity. Oftentimes our unity is an unbiblical version of it where it's essentially assimilation, Right. But God is eternally unified and diverse. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. None of them dominate one another. And yet none of them are the same as each other. And so in the same way, male and female, he created him his image, different races, different cultures. And he called us to go out and cultivate the earth and create with him. And, and in his image, we are also lowercase c creators. And this is part of our divine mandate and our divine image bearing. And so but in our sin, we want to say, oh, who I am is defined by being better than someone else. And so what Jesus is bringing us back to in redemption is not assimilation or not, oh, we're all just going to be like the same. No, we're going to be different, but in the way he intended us to be, in a way that's equal and equitable. We have to live that now on earth as it is and will be in heaven. And, and so I think that's where we have to also really do that work of, of owning who we are, but also bringing that into the church community. And that might look like being, you know, uh, a part of a church that ha- is committed to that and you're helping to grow that and be that that model of what we see in the other church. And it might be being a prophetic voice in a church where that's not exactly where people are at, but God might have called you to go into that space and and really kind of uh, be a prophetic presence. And, um, and I think that that's also, uh, again, equally valid. And it's just a matter of knowing, you know, kind of how God is calling each of us to um, be more of a, a Jeremiah and really calling to the people or which of us is called to be more of a Nehemiah and really to, you know, kind of come in to the community and really build things from the ground up. That's powerful. Your younger self has a lot to think about right now. You just, you shared a lot with your younger self. I love that. It's so good. Uh, it's powerful. And for those of you who are listening, one theme I'm hearing that isn't explicit in what uh, Vince is telling us is that you need to be the solution. What I love about your ministry and your life, Dr. Bantu, is you're representing a school which is meant to be a part of the solution to the problem. Your book is presenting, you don't need to deconstruct your faith completely away from Jesus because you were brought into an oppressive, sinful, terrible, white savior Jesus situation. You can find a beautiful, wholesome legacy within the church. Are there problems? Is it broken? Sure. But you have the African and Asian line of history that you can find that is more biblical to the tradition. And that's what I love hearing. And in this age, you know, the audience for this podcast are leaders, but also younger. And uh, it's easy for us just to give up. And what I love, what you just said to your younger self is get plugged in and be the solution. And that's so much of the life that you're promoting in, in the school that you're representing as well, which I love in your career. Just a few more questions, we'll land the plane. What are you working on right now that you would want our audience to know about? They need to pick up your book, A Multitude of Peoples, Engaging Ancient Christianity's Global Identity. Pick it up, learn from it, it's beautiful. What else are you working on right now that you want to tell us about? Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, kind of just to follow up really with what you were saying, Josh, of, of again, me trying to, you know, create solutions or be the solution, all that like that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, I'm working on a couple of books right now that, you know, are trying to do that. I have a, you know, working on a, a monograph on uh, early Egyptian Christianity 
um, with University of California Press. And then also with University of California Press, uh, this would be, I would hope to be a way that, that people can do exactly what, what you're saying, that, that we can actually, again, not just deconstruct, but also reconstruct or to use a, a concept of my ancestors, Sankofa, like to go back and get it. You know, part, a big part of my ministry is really trying to, again, make available a lot of the resources of the early church in Africa and Asia so that people understand the fullness of the global Christian tradition. And it's not only the Western tradition that we've all been, um, you know, kind of exposed to. And so if folks can read A Multitude of All Peoples, the goal of that book is just to give a brief history so that that we can become uh, familiar with a lot of the church mothers and fathers from Africa and Asia. Because, you know, even if we're lay people, you know, most people have heard the names like Thomas Aquinas or Martin Luther or Jonathan Edwards. Like we, we might not know a whole lot about it, but we've heard their names. But even PhDs in his, theology and history have never even heard a lot of the more the most well-known African and Asian theologians like Narsai or Babai the Great or Walata Petros or or Zara Yacob. And so that's really the goal of Multitude of All Peoples is to make people aware. But then this other project I'm working on with the University of California Press is, I think, in a way even more important because it's actually going to be a translation project where uh, myself and a dozen other translators are translating various um, kind of greatest hits, if you will, of early theology, pre-colonial theology uh, in Chinese, Arabic, Georgian, uh, um, you know, Sogdian and uh, and Ethiopic or Ge'ez, Coptic. And it's going to be all in one big fat reader in English translation so people can have direct access to some of the most prolific African and Asian pre-colonial theologians. I have a bias towards pre-colonial, uh, or in some cases, even it's what I like to call a-colonial, places that have yeah. never been colonized, like Ethiopia, that have a theological imagination that's both like kind of unique to its cultural context, but also it's free from being kind of a reaction to this kind of colonial imposition. But it's just, no, it's its own thing. Um, and so I'm working on that as well. And actually, there's another uh, translation I'm working on that's actually, uh, as far as I can tell, is the oldest known sub-Saharan African author in human history. Uh, I don't know of an earlier one, but uh, Georgis of Sagla. He's one of the texts that we're including in that reader, but I'm actually working on a full translation of his book called The Book of Mystery. Uh, it's going to take me a while, but I'm working on translating that because, again, as far as I can see, it was written in the early 1400s as like a systematic theology or hymenote, if you will, but from an Ethiopian perspective in the early 1400s. And as, as far as I can tell, it's the earliest sub-Saharan African text ever written whose author is positively identified. And, and it just happens to be a Christian monk and theologian. So that just shows how, I mean, the, the earliest sub-Saharan African author that's known is Christian theology. Just show, you know, yeah. just it shows how Christianity has been at the core of African and Asian identity from the beginning. So, you know, that's some things I'm writing and working on. Uh, the, the last thing I'll say is also at our school, uh, at Meacham School of Hymenote, uh, we are also in the work also of doing theology that is both um, Afrocentric and is liberative for the black community, um, but is also uh, rooted in biblical orthodoxy, uh, which unfortunately a lot of academic black theology is often not. And so we have a, you know, uh, we're the only uh, seminary that is both black academic kind of graduate level seminary that's both black Afrocentric and theologically orthodox or biblical. And we have a conference that's coming up that, you know, it's digital. So it'd be great if folks want to, it's just an opportunity to really kind of see, and like you said, trying to be that solution of being a, a convening space. It's actually the only black academic theology conference uh, in the country. And so um, if anybody wants to check that out, it's October 22nd and 23rd. And there's a journal that publishes the proceedings um, and it's a it's a black Christian publisher, uh, yeah. black 
some scholars doing black theological academic work. And again, the only journal, the only conference and the only, again, biblical seminary. Uh, and so that's a, that could be a great opportunity as well. Just, and again, it's just like you're saying, we're trying to do what we've been talking about of creating and elevating theological institutions and movements that are coming out of communities that have been historically marginalized. Uh, what's the website? Uh, it's Meacham, M-E-A-C-H-U-M dot O-R-G. Meacham dot org. Definitely uh, rewind that, get the spelling right, type it in and see if that's something you want to partake in, those of you who are listening. Last question, and this is something I ask everybody, regardless of the season, what is key to peace in the 21st century? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. I mean, I think there's so many things that we could answer that, uh, you know, the, the, the concept of shalom is so, so holistic, right? I would say um, Jesus saying, I came to bring like sword and not, and not peace. And, and I think of the Hebrews in the Old Testament and how they were the, they were like God's representative of shalom in the world, but how God said like, you know, I've called you to be different. Like, don't be like the other nations. Right. And we're living in a, t- a day, especially in the last four years where it's, I mean, there's things that have been difficult, but in the, in a way, I think it's actually good in a way that there's been like kind of a, re- a holy reckoning of like, what does it really mean to be a Christian? And what does it really mean to be uh, committed to the gospel way of Jesus as opposed to a flag or a political party or a, a, a race or like a, an expression of syncretism or religious nationalism. And I think that an unholy expression that's just kind of gone unchecked in a way is not real peace, right? And so in a way, like some of the some of the sifting and, you know, whatever you want to call it, we're in a moment where we have an opportunity to actually live into the necessary divisions of standing up for the true gospel of Jesus Christ and not any kind of syncretistic expression that has just subconsciously melded the American flag with the cross of Jesus Christ for so many years. And now people are saying like, whoa, actually, wait, we need to rethink this. And I think that's a good thing. And I think that that rethinking and that kind of saying, actually, God always meant for us to not be like the nations around us and actually be a distinct people, a chosen royal priesthood, that that's actually um, can feel divisive. But actually, it's in my understanding, that is that's the the definition of biblical peace. And so I think to lean into that and to really get again be a a beacon of the gospel which is truth and grace and justice all together is a is a a way to do that that's beautiful thanks for answering that last question dr vince bantu thank you so much for your time thank you for listening to this podcast we the peace You can find more resources at madeforpax.org and you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at PAX. This is We the Peace.